Chapter 5, Part A of The Wealth of Nations, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 4, Chapter 5, Part A. Of Bounties. Bounties upon exportation are, in Great Britain, frequently petitioned for, and sometimes granted, to the produce of particular branches of domestic industry. By means of them, our merchants and manufacturers, it is pretended, will be enabled to sell their goods as cheap or cheaper than their rivals in the foreign market. A greater quantity, it is said, will thus be exported, and the balance of trade consequently turned more in favor of our own country. We cannot give our workmen a monopoly in the foreign, as we have done in the home market. We cannot force foreigners to buy their goods, as we have done our own countrymen. The next best expedient, it has been thought, therefore, is to pay them for buying. It is in this manner that the mercantile system proposes to enrich the whole country, and to put money into all our pockets, by means of the balance of trade. Bounties, it is allowed, ought to be given to those branches of trade only which cannot be carried on without them. But every branch of trade in which the merchant can sell his goods for a price which replaces to him, with the ordinary profits of stock, the whole capital employed in preparing and sending them to market, can be carried on without a bounty. Every such branch is evidently upon a level with all the other branches of trade which are carried on without bounties, and cannot, therefore, require one more than they. Those trades only require bounties, in which the merchant is obliged to sell his goods for a price which does not replace to him his capital, together with the ordinary profit, or in which he is obliged to sell them for less than it really cost him to send them to market. The bounty is given in order to make up this loss, and to encourage him to continue, or perhaps to begin, a trade, of which the expense is supposed to be greater than the returns, of which every operation eats up a part of the capital employed in it, and which is of such a nature that if all other trades resembled it, there would soon be no capital left in the country. The trades, it is to be observed, which are carried on by means of bounties, are the only ones which can be carried on between two nations for any considerable time together in such a manner as that one of them shall always and regularly lose or sell its goods for less than it really cost to send them to market. But if the bounty did not repay to the merchant what he would otherwise lose upon the price of his goods, his own interest would soon oblige him to employ his stock in another way, or to find out a trade in which the price of the goods would replace to him, with the ordinary profit, the capital employed in sending them to market. The effect of bounties, like that of all the other expedients of the mercantile system, can only be to force the trade of a country into a channel much less advantageous than that in which it would naturally run of its own accord. The ingenious and well-informed author of The Tracks Upon the Corn Trade has shown very clearly that since the bounty upon the exportation of corn was first established, the price of the corn exported, valued moderately enough, has exceeded that of the corn imported, valued very high, by a much greater sum than the amount of the whole bounties which have been paid during that period. This, he imagines, upon the true principles of the mercantile system, is a clear proof that this forced corn trade is beneficial to the nation, the value of the exportation exceeding that of the importation by a much greater sum than the whole extraordinary expense which the public has been at in order to get it exported. 
He does not consider that this extraordinary expense, or the bounty, is the smallest part of the expense which the exportation of corn really costs the society. The capital which the farmer employed in raising it must likewise be taken into the account. Unless the price of the corn, when sold in the foreign markets, replaces not only the bounty, but this capital, together with the ordinary profits of stock, the society is a loser by the difference, or the national stock is so much diminished. But the very reason for which it has been thought necessary to grant a bounty is the supposed insufficiency of the price to do this. The average price of corn, it has been said, has fallen considerably since the establishment of the bounty. That the average price of corn began to fall somewhat towards the end of the last century, and has continued to do so during the course of the sixty-four first years of the present, I have already endeavored to show. But this event, supposing it to be real, as I believe it to be, must have happened in spite of the bounty, and cannot possibly have happened in consequence of it. It has happened in France, as well as in England, though in France there was not only no bounty, but, till 1764, the exportation of corn was subjected to a general prohibition. This gradual fall in the average price of grain, it is probable, therefore, is ultimately owing neither to the one regulation nor to the other, but to that gradual and insensible rise in the real value of silver, which, in the first book of this discourse, I have endeavored to show, has taken place in the general market of Europe during the course of the present century. It seems to be altogether impossible that the bounty could ever contribute to lower the price of grain. In years of plenty, it has already been observed, the bounty, by occasioning an extraordinary exportation, necessarily keeps up the price of corn in the home market above what it would naturally fall to. To do so was the avowed purpose of the institution. In years of scarcity, though the bounty is frequently suspended, yet the great exportation which it occasions in years of plenty must frequently hinder, more or less, the plenty of one year from relieving the scarcity of another. Both in years of plenty and in years of scarcity, therefore, the bounty necessarily tends to raise the money price of corn somewhat higher than it otherwise would be in the home market. That in the actual state of tillage the bounty must necessarily have this tendency will not, I apprehend, be disputed by any reasonable person. But it has been thought by many people that it tends to encourage tillage, and that in two different ways. First, by opening a more extensive foreign market to the corn of the farmer, it tends, they imagine, to increase the demand for, and consequently the production of, that commodity. And, secondly, by securing to him a better price than he could otherwise expect in the actual state of tillage, it tends, they suppose, to encourage tillage. This double encouragement must, they imagine, in a long period of years, occasion such an increase in the production of corn as may lower its price in the home market much more than the bounty can raise it in the actual state which tillage may, at the end of that period, happen to be in. I answer that whatever extension of the foreign market can be occasioned by the bounty must, in every particular year, be altogether at the expense of the home market, as every bushel of corn which is exported by means of the bounty, and which would not have been exported without the bounty, would have remained in the home market to increase the consumption and to lower the price of that commodity. The corn bounty, it is to be observed, as well as every other bounty upon exportation, imposes two different taxes upon the people. First, the tax which they are obliged to contribute in order to pay the bounty, 
and, secondly, the tax which arises from the advanced price of the commodity in the home market, and which, as the whole body of the people are purchasers of corn, must, in this particular commodity, be paid by the whole body of the people. In this particular commodity, therefore, this second tax is by much the heaviest of the two. Let us suppose that, taking one year with another, the bounty of five shillings upon the exportation of the quarter of wheat raises the price of that commodity in the home market only six pence the bushel, or four shillings the quarter higher than it otherwise would have been in the actual state of the crop. Even upon this very moderate supposition, the great body of the people, over and above contributing the tax which pays the bounty of five shillings upon every quarter of wheat exported, must pay another of four shillings upon every quarter which they themselves consume. But according to the very well-informed author of The Tracks Upon the Corn Trade, the average proportion of the corn exported to that consumed at home is not more than that of one to thirty-one. For every five shillings, therefore, which they contribute to the payment of the first tax, they must contribute six pounds four shillings to the payment of the second, so very heavy a tax upon the first necessary of life must either reduce the subsistence of the laboring poor, or it must occasion some augmentation of their pecuniary wages proportionable to that in the pecuniary price of their subsistence. So far as it operates in the one way, it must reduce the ability of the laboring poor to educate and bring up their children, and must, so far, tend to restrain the population of the country." So far as it operates in the other, it must reduce the ability of the employers of the poor to employ so great a number as they otherwise might do, and must so far tend to restrain the industry of the country. The extraordinary exportation of corn, therefore, occasioned by the bounty, not only in every particular year diminishes the home just as much as it extends the foreign market and consumption, but, by restraining the population and industry of the country, its final tendency is to stint and restrain the gradual extension of the home market, and thereby, in the long run, rather to diminish than to augment the whole market and consumption of corn. This enhancement of the money price of corn, however, it has been thought, by rendering that commodity more profitable to the farmer, must necessarily encourage its production. I answer that this might be the case, if the effect of the bounty was to raise the real price of corn, or to enable the farmer, with an equal quantity of it, to maintain a greater number of laborers in the same manner, whether liberal, moderate, or scanty, than other laborers are commonly maintained in his neighborhood. But neither the bounty, it is evident, nor any other human institution can have any such effect. It is not the real, but the nominal price of corn, which can in any considerable degree be affected by the bounty. And though the tax, which that institution imposes upon the whole body of the people, may be very burdensome to those who pay it, it is of very little advantage to those who receive it. The real effect of the bounty is not so much to raise the real value of corn, as to degrade the real value of silver, or to make an equal quantity of it exchange for a smaller quantity, not only of corn, but of all other home-made commodities, for the money price of corn regulates that of all other home-made commodities. It regulates the money price of labor, which must always be such as to enable the laborer to purchase a quantity of corn sufficient to maintain him and his family, either in the liberal, moderate, or scanty manner in which the advancing, stationary, or declining circumstances of the society oblige his employers to maintain him. 
it regulates the money price of all the other parts of the rude produce of land which in every period of improvement must bear a certain proportion to that of corn though this proportion is different in different periods it regulates for example the money price of grass and hay of butcher's meat of horses and the maintenance of horses of land carriage consequently or of the greater part of the inland commerce of the country by regulating the money price of all the other parts of the rude produce of land it regulates that of the materials of almost all manufactures by regulating the money price of labor it regulates that of manufacturing art and industry and by regulating both it regulates that of the complete manufacture the money price of labor and of everything that is the produce either of land or labor must necessarily either rise or fall in proportion to the money price of corn though in consequence of the bounty therefore the farmer should be enabled to sell his corn for four shillings the bushel instead of three shillings sixpence and to pay his landlord a money rent proportionable to this rise in the money price of his produce yet if in consequence of this rise in the price of corn four shillings will purchase no more home-made goods of any other kind than three shillings sixpence would have done before neither the circumstances of the farmer nor those of the landlord will be much mended by this change the farmer will not be able to cultivate much better the landlord will not be able to live much better in the purchase of foreign commodities this enhancement in the price of corn may give them some little advantage in that of home-made commodities it can give them none at all and almost the whole expense of the farmer and the far greater part even of that of the landlord is in home-made commodities that degradation in the value of silver which is the effect of the fertility of the mines and which operates equally or very nearly equally through the greater part of the commercial world is a matter of very little consequence to any particular country the consequent rise of all money prices though it does not make those who receive them really richer does not make them really poorer a service of plate becomes really cheaper and everything else remains precisely of the same real value as before but that degradation in the value of silver which being the effect either of the peculiar situation or of the political institutions of a particular country takes place only in that country is a matter of very great consequence which far from tending to make anybody really richer tends to make everybody really poorer the rise in the money price of all commodities which is in this case peculiar to that country tends to discourage more or less every sort of industry which is carried on within it and to enable foreign nations by furnishing almost all sorts of goods for a smaller quantity of silver than its own workmen can afford to do to undersell them not only in the foreign but even in the home market it is the peculiar situation of spain and portugal as proprietors of the mines to be the distributors of gold and silver to all the other countries of europe those metals ought naturally therefore to be somewhat cheaper in spain and portugal than in any other part of europe the difference however should be no more than the amount of the freight and insurance and on account of the great value and small bulk of those metals their freight is no great matter and their insurance is the same as that of any other goods of equal value spain and portugal therefore could suffer very little from their peculiar situation if they did not aggravate its disadvantages by their political institutions 
Spain, by taxing, and Portugal, by prohibiting, the exportation of gold and silver, load that exportation with the expense of smuggling, and raise the value of those metals in other countries so much more above what it is in their own, by the whole amount of this expense. When you dam up a stream of water, as soon as the dam is full, as much water must run over the dam head as if there was no dam at all. The prohibition of exportation cannot detain a greater quantity of gold and silver in Spain and Portugal than what they can afford to employ, than what the annual produce of their land and labor will allow them to employ, in coin, plate, gilding, and other ornaments of gold and silver. When they have got this quantity, the dam is full, and the whole stream which flows in afterwards must run over. The annual exportation of gold and silver from Spain and Portugal, accordingly, is, by all accounts, notwithstanding these restraints, very near equal to the whole annual importation. As the water, however, must always be deeper behind the dam head than before it, so the quantity of gold and silver which these restraints detain in Spain and Portugal must, in proportion to the annual produce of their land and labor, be greater than what is to be found in other countries. The higher and stronger the dam head, the greater must be the difference in the depth of water behind and before it. The higher the tax, the higher the penalties with which the prohibition is guarded, the more vigilant and severe the police which looks after the execution of the law, the greater must be the difference in the proportion of gold and silver to the annual produce of the land and labor of Spain and Portugal, and to that of other countries. It is said, accordingly, to be very considerable, and that you frequently find there is a profusion of plate in houses where there is nothing else which would in other countries be thought suitable or correspondent to this sort of magnificence. The cheapness of gold and silver, or, what is the same thing, the dearness of all commodities, which is the necessary effect of this redundancy of the precious metals, discourages both the agriculture and manufactures of Spain and Portugal, and enables foreign nations to supply them with many sorts of rude, and with almost all sorts of manufactured produce, for a smaller quantity of gold and silver than what they themselves can either raise or make them for at home. The tax and prohibition operate in two different ways. They not only lower very much the value of the precious metals in Spain and Portugal, but by detaining there a certain quantity of those metals which would otherwise flow over other countries, they keep up their value in those other countries somewhat above what it otherwise would be, and thereby give those countries a double advantage in their commerce with Spain and Portugal. Open the floodgates, and there will presently be less water above and more below the dam head, and it will soon come to a level in both places. Remove the tax and the prohibition, and as the quantity of gold and silver will diminish considerably in Spain and Portugal, so it will increase somewhat in other countries, and the value of those metals, their proportion to the annual produce of land and labor, will soon come to a level, or very near to a level, in all. The loss which Spain and Portugal could sustain by this exportation of their gold and silver would be altogether nominal and imaginary. The nominal value of their goods, and of the annual produce of their land and labor, would fall, and would be expressed or represented by a smaller quantity of silver than before. But their real value would be the same as before, and would be sufficient to maintain, command, and employ the same quantity of labor. As the nominal value of their goods would fall, the real value of what remained of their gold and silver would rise, and a smaller quantity of those metals would answer all the same purposes of commerce and circulation which had employed a greater quantity before. 
the gold and silver which would go abroad would not go abroad for nothing but would bring back an equal value of goods of some kind or other those goods too would not be all matters of mere luxury and expense to be consumed by idle people who produce nothing in return for their consumption as the real wealth and revenue of idle people would not be augmented by this extraordinary exportation of gold and silver so neither would their consumption be much augmented by it those goods would probably the greater part of them and certainly some part of them consist in materials tools and provisions for the employment and maintenance of industrious people who would reproduce with a profit the full value of their consumption a part of the dead stock of the society would thus be turned into active stock and would put into motion a greater quantity of industry than had been employed before the annual produce of their land and labor would immediately be augmented a little and in a few years would probably be augmented a great deal their industry being thus relieved from one of the most oppressive burdens which it at present labors under the bounty upon the exportation of corn necessarily operates exactly in the same way as this absurd policy of spain and portugal whatever be the actual state of tillage it renders our corn somewhat dearer in the home market than it otherwise would be in that state and somewhat cheaper in the foreign and as the average money price of corn regulates more or less that of all other commodities it lowers the value of silver considerably in the one and tends to raise it a little in the other it enables foreigners the dutch in particular not only to eat our corn cheaper than they otherwise could do but sometimes to eat it cheaper than even our own people can do upon the same occasions as we are assured by an excellent authority that of sir matthew decker it hinders our own workmen from furnishing their goods for so small a quantity of silver as they otherwise might do and enables the dutch to furnish theirs for a smaller it tends to render our manufacturers somewhat dearer in every market and theirs somewhat cheaper than they otherwise would be and consequently to give their industry a double advantage over our own the bounty as it raises in the home market not so much the real as the nominal price of our corn as it augments not the quantity of labor which a certain quantity of corn can maintain and employ but only the quantity of silver which it will exchange for it discourages our manufacturers without rendering any considerable service either to our farmers or country gentlemen it puts indeed a little more money into the pockets of both and will perhaps be somewhat difficult to persuade the greater part of them that this is not rendering them a very considerable service but if this money sinks in its value in the quantity of labor provisions and home-made commodities of all different kinds which it is capable of purchasing as much as it rises in its quantity the service will be little more than nominal and imaginary there is perhaps but one set of men in the whole commonwealth to whom the bounty either was or could be essentially serviceable these were the corn merchants the exporters and importers of corn in years of plenty the bounty necessarily occasioned a greater exportation than would otherwise have taken place and by hindering the plenty of the one year from relieving the scarcity of another it occasioned in years of scarcity a greater importation than would otherwise have been necessary it increased the business of the corn merchant in both and in the years of scarcity it not only enabled him to import a greater quantity but to sell it for a better price and consequently with a greater profit than he could otherwise have made if the plenty of one year had not been more or less hindered from relieving the scarcity of another 
It is in this set of men, accordingly, that I have observed the greatest zeal for the continuance or renewal of the bounty. End of Book 4, Chapter 5, Part A